All right, Mark chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Read with me. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Let's pray. Father, it is our sincere desire that you speak to us through your word this morning. God, we need your word. And we need you to open our eyes to it so we understand truth. This morning as we study this passage, one that we often call the transfiguration, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to listen, to love, and to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of our message this morning, I've called Confirmation from Above. The story of Jesus' transfiguration. I want to begin by asking you a question. When was the last time that you needed confirmation for something? And I'm not talking like confirmation for your airlines, right? We, we live in a world where everything has to be confirmed. I'm talking about when was the last time that someone told you something that so challenged your understanding your beliefs, or your expectations, that it would have been impossible for you to believe unless it was proven to you. Has anything like that happened to you recently? Or has anything like that happened to you in your life? That somebody tells you something so beyond the scope of what you're able to comprehend, whether it's some scientific fact or some fact about history that you are positive, I have never heard it that way. I don't know if it can be true. 
that it had to be proven for you to you. And I guess that brings up the next question, what is acceptable proof? Like what would it actually take to make you change your mind? When I was in college, and maybe some of you remember this show, there's a show called Mythbusters. Maybe some of you have seen some of the old episodes, but here's the way Mythbusters worked. So Mythbusters would take on stories from history or things that they found on the internet or things that they showed in movies or maybe even what we call urban legends. Have you ever had urban legends? I think every kid grows up on urban legends. I heard it from so-and-so and and -and so-and-so that this is true. And you're like, what? Right? And so we have these kind of urban legends hanging around in our cultures of things that we say have happened or things that have come. Some kid did this and then this happened. So Mythbusters basically took these, they, they collected them, and they made years and years and years of shows addressing some of these, what we call, myths. And so the, what they would have is they would have experts every single week who would take on all of these things, and their goal was simply to do one thing, to use the, the best scientific, mathematic, physical, historical means to either prove or disprove. And the entire show followed, and what ended, the, the show ended with either the huge words across the screen, busted, meaning it's a lie, it can't happen, we've disproved, or occasionally it would be confirmed. You think, wow, it really can happen. And they did a bunch of crazy things. If you're uh, interested, uh, it's, a, it's a clean show. It's an interesting show. You'll learn science. You'll learn math. You'll learn all kinds of different things. But it made me think about this show when I thought about this passage. Because as we read, one of the things that becomes immediately clear is after Jesus has spent time with his disciples and He's asked them the question, remember where we left off before we began our summer series, that Jesus invites his disciples and says, who do you say I am? We've spent eight chapters of miracle after miracle and teaching after teaching of Jesus revealing to his disciples who he is. And then it reaches a climax where Jesus with his disciples says, who do the crowd say I am? And they answer, Some say Elijah, some say others, some say a prophet. And then Jesus turns the tables on him. And he says, but you, not the crowds, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter is what we call the great confession. He kind of just, he he says, in, in a sense, for all of the disciples, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Eight chapters, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, seeking to bring his disciples to a first-hand recognition, where, and Alex said this morning, where they confessed with their own mouth, not, I, I believe in my heart, but I'm literally willing to confess with my words that Jesus is the Christ. And immediately after that, Jesus tells them something he had never told them before, and it completely shakes their faith and disorients them, and they're wondering Is what we understand to be true, is this really the Messiah? Because what Jesus tells them is, from now on, I'm on my way to suffer and to die. 
and I'll be crucified, and I will rise again. When they heard this message, everything that they had heard before was completely disoriented. Because in their mind, this is now the climax. We, you've been walking us through. We've been hearing from you. We've been following you. You've just asked us if we understand who you are, and we confessed that you're the Messiah. And Jesus confirms it, says, yes. It's only God who can reveal this to you, Peter. And then you think, well, then happily ever after. Jesus has 12 followers. They'll change the world. The kingdom will come. And Jesus all of a sudden tells them something that they can't quite understand. And it makes them doubt everything. He says, here's where we go from right here in your confession. I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified and I'll rise again. So that's where we pick up this morning. And the reason for this idea of confirmed from above and the reason we start with Mistbusters is what would it take for the disciples to know for sure that Jesus was who he said he was? Because after their confession, they're going to have difficulty believing that Jesus was truly Messiah or that his mission and his teaching was something that they could follow. So our agenda today, I give you an outline. We're going to take a look at verses 9 to 13, and here's what we're going to look at. Here's the outline for this morning. In verse 1, we're going to see a sign is promised. In verses 2 to 3, we're going to see Jesus' glory revealed. In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see a visit from Moses and Elijah. In 7 and 8, confirmation and a command from above. And in verses 9 to 13, we have a closing command from Jesus and some questions by his disciples. That's the outline for this morning as we take a look at our text. And here's already what I want you to be thinking about and know that you're going to walk away with. We've got three C's. What you should walk away with today is confirmation. What you should walk away with today is a clear command. What you should walk away with today is with confidence to be able to follow Jesus with where he is leading. This is where we're going with the passage. It's just straight from the text. Confirmation, command, confidence. Let's dive right in. Let's get to verse 1. Let's take a look at a sign is promised. Let me read verse 1 for you again. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, if you have your Bible, uh, we oftentimes um, allow the the chapters and divisions to kind of give us a a, a false sense of uh, where things are beginning and ending. If you uh, look at the end of Mark 8.38, this is where we left off. In fact, I read, uh, I included Mark 9.1 just before the summer when we, we left off. I need to make a connection here. Because after Jesus reveals to his disciples, one, that yes, he is the Messiah, and he begins to reveal that he's going to suffer and die, this is actually how the conversation ended. It's Mark 8, 38 and 9, 1. They go together. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory 
of his father with the angels. And the focus is, look at that last section, on when he comes in glory with his angels. Jesus is clearly pointing to a time in the future. And then he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God that has come with power. Verses 8, 38, and 9, 1 are clearly connected. And Jesus is saying in 9, 1 that there's going to be a sign. So I have this section, a sign is promised. What is the sign? That some of the disciples will not die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus has told them something that he knows is going to be hard for them to comprehend. They know his identity, and now he reveals that he's going to suffer and die. And so he doesn't leave them just wondering. He actually tells them that there's going to be a sign. Some of you will not die until you've seen the kingdom of God coming in power. Now, in a sense, that's understandable, but it was still vague. What exactly does that mean? Also in these verses, let me just point out, you notice that Jesus oftentimes uses a truly, truly formula. So when Jesus is is pointing out something significant or something that he wants to call his disciples' attention to, Jesus always prefaces that statement with a truly statement or a truly, truly statement. And notice in verse 9, he says to them, truly, I say to you. So when Jesus uses this formula, he's calling clear attention. Pay attention to what I am going to say next. It's really important. And what he says next after that statement is, some of you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. Now, this is shocking. I don't know if you remember. So if you weren't with us in our study of Mark, we've had multiple times where people have asked Jesus for signs. Do you know what Jesus' response was to everyone who asked him for a sign? No. He wouldn't give the Pharisees a sign. Jesus refused to give those who were doubting him and those who were challenging him. They said, you show us a sign in order for us to believe. Jesus had had never given in because we told you Jesus is not a magician. He's not a performer. Jesus didn't simply do miracles for people to shock and awe. Jesus was the son of God who came bringing the very words of life, who shared those words of life. And as opportunities presented themselves, he would heal and he would cast out demons. But Jesus didn't, wasn't there to collect the crowd and to put on a show. And so when they begged for more of the miracles, show me the power, Jesus refused. So it should shock us right here that without even asking, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign. It should show us how important Jesus understands this message that he will suffer and die and how critical it is that his disciples understand this. And so Jesus is going to promise a sign. So let me end this section, just say why the sign. And it's the, the fundamental message that we've already talked about in the title. Why the sign? Jesus promises to give a sign for confirmation of his message. The sign was to confirm his message. So that they might know that all the things they've been listening, that the man that they had followed for the last possibly two years, we don't know exactly the time date at this, but that the call and the cost of being a disciple that Jesus had shared with them was true. So Jesus provides a sign. Why the sign? So that they would confirm his message. I'm going to move to verses 2 and 3. 
Because we're going to talk about Jesus' glory being revealed. Let me read verses 2 and 3. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Just a couple comments about this, uh, verses 2 and 3. You notice here what's often referred to as the inner three. Peter and James and John. Jesus had 12 disciples, but it's with Peter and James and John that oftentimes he will invite them to come away with him. Is that Jesus is going to invest in these three men in a way that he did not invest in the 12. So when Jesus comes and ministered, he invites all to follow him and be a disciple. Of those disciples, he invites 12 specifically to come around him, and they would be his apostles, those who he's going to really send out on his mission. And of those 12, Jesus has an inner three. Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. Peter, as you know, is the one that is called the rock, the one that Jesus is going to uh, use to, to build his church. Uh, specifically, it's on his faith that Jesus is going to build his church, his, his profession of faith. But Jesus takes these three. Now, as Jesus takes these three, in verse 2 it says, He was transfigured before them. This is not a word we use very often. So, uh, in, in, I would say, when many of us learn the biblical stories, this story is often referred to as the transfiguration of Jesus. What does that even mean? Does anybody, when, when, when you think of that, what, what do you understand is taking place? Well, it'd probably help if I told you that this word for transfiguration is actually the same word that we use for metamorphosis. Right? The, the same word from... Caterpillar to butterfly, right? Literally a, a change of form. Does that help maybe understand what was taking place? So when we say the transfiguration of Jesus, it was literally that in front of the disciples, something happened to Jesus that they have never seen happen to anyone before, let alone Jesus, anyone. And that is his form changed. There's not a better word for it. For, uh, for a, a caterpillar, you have said, yeah, there's a metamorphosis. It, it, there's a sense in that we don't have a human word for this, right? So we have to try to borrow and say what took place on that mountain that was going to help the disciples understand this will be a sign for you. Well, it was Jesus' transfiguration or his metamorphosis. Well, what happened? Well, in verse 3, it tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Why this description? If you read the scriptures, there's two things about God's character and his very identity that are uh, woven throughout scripture. One, that God is life and light. And when we think of God, that God is the ex- that God in his character is the exact opposite of darkness and death. And so when, when God begins to appear, we have a word, we call it his, his glory or his Shekinah glory, that when, when God appears on the scene in scriptures, that accompanying God is a brightness that is so bright that we, once again, we don't have words. So the words that Mark used, he says, they were, their clothes were bleached, or they were laundered in some, uh, uh, some versions. We'll say they were laundered. Basically, Mark 
and the disciples are trying to communicate a white that is brighter than any white they've ever seen. And this is what happened. And, uh, there's, a, there's a parallel passage in Luke. We don't see it in Mark. And when I talk about, if you're new uh, here at River of Life, we have four Gospels. We're studying Mark. We're in one of the four Gospels. So there's, when I say Gospels, there's four accounts or four stories of Jesus' life. And in the, the story written by Luke, Luke gives us some other information. He says that when Jesus takes his three up to the mountain, Jesus is praying. And as Jesus is praying, literally he starts to transform. Is that from the inside out, he begins to glow. He begins to radiate. And for the first time, something that was hidden from them, that God in human flesh, God himself, born uh, allowing himself to be born a baby and, and now living as a human life, fully God and fully man, had always hid his glory from his disciples. And as Jesus is praying for the first time, as a sign, God allows Jesus' glory to be seen. And the best words that we have to describe what took place when Jesus in human flesh allowed his divinity, that means that his being God himself in human flesh, the first time that happens is on this mountain, and it's a very clear sign for the disciples to know and understand the man they were following. And so the words they used, they said he was transformed. He was metamorphosed. He was, his clothes began to shine. And by the way, there's also another account, and I want to show you, just make a very clear difference. You know, in the Old Testament, when Moses would spend time with God, that something very unique would happen. Because when Moses would come in and speak with God, the Shekinah glory, literally of God, the, 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 the glory of God, of being in his presence, Moses' face would shine from being in God's presence. In fact, it, it, was, it was so unusual that the people asked him to wear a veil when he came back. But there's an interesting difference because Moses and being in God's presence his face would only reflect God's glory. When we see Jesus, something that was very unique, Jesus literally begins to radiate God's glory. The glory comes from within and starts to go out. And we see very clearly, Jesus is not just a Moses. His face doesn't reflect because he spent time with God. He's not a man like you or me. This is God himself in human form. And so on that mountain, for the first time, as, uh, as Peter and James and John are invited along, they're watching Jesus pray, and before their eyes, the glory of God himself begins to shine. And that's why the description of the white clothes. We, we have some descriptions, and I can point you maybe to just one that will help you see. Daniel 7, 9, when Daniel is talking about seeing God in heaven, and he says, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. The Ancient of Days is just another name for God. It's the, one, it's, the, it's the God whose days cannot be numbered. He is the Ancient of Days. He is eternal. And when David sees him on the throne, it says, His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was like pure wool. Around his throne were fiery flames, and wheels were burning with fire. It says, a stream of fire issued out and came from uh, before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. 
And the court sat in judgment and it says the books were open. This is talking about God's judgment. But you get a picture there of another writer trying to wrestle and, gra- and grasp, how do I put into words to see the glory of God when we don't have words that could even explain those kind of colors, those kind of things? And so Daniel says, something as white as snow, his hair as white as pure wool. And Mark, we have it, he says, they're, they're, Jesus' clothes were as white as any, as, as like a launderer, as, as bleached, as white as white can be. And I'm, as I mentioned, this is to show God's glory. What is the significance of the transfiguration? The significance of the transfiguration is it revealed Jesus' divinity. Transfiguration revealed Jesus' divinity. Now, I want to move on to verses 5 and 6. We're going to take a look at the Law and the Prophets. Let me read this, these verses to remind us of what we... Just, the story that we've read this morning. It says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love this in verse 6. It says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Let's kind of focus in on this, did not know what to say. Another way of just saying this is they didn't understand. that the, the three disciples had no way to really comprehend what exactly they were looking at. What was actually taking place right in front of them? As we, we sit years later and we have all of the scriptures and as we can, could sit and, and, and study, we have a much better understanding. We have a specific word. It's the transfiguration, right? Peter and James and John didn't have words and they, they actually didn't know what to do. So Peter suggests that he makes three little shelters. And if you think, what is that even? Why three shelters? Here's our best understanding. Peter understands what they're experiencing is good. They're up on the mountain. They're with Jesus. And Jesus, they've seen Elijah and Moses. And when you experience something good, there's probably something in your heart that says, let's keep it going longer. And so Peter suggests, let's just keep meeting on the mountain. Jesus, this is awesome. Because it's very clear from the text that Peter and James and John aren't kind of off at a distance watching, that they were literally with Jesus. Jesus was praying. And that when Elijah and Moses appeared, they were in front of them. Mark doesn't include this, but the Luke account does, is that they were talking about the fact that Jesus was going to go away. So they're, they're sitting in on a conversation. Listening. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to reply. They don't know exactly how, kind of, do we say something? Do we not say something? Do we just listen? So Peter's best attempt was, let's build some shelters. And it shows you that they didn't quite understand the moment. So let's talk about this idea of Elijah and Moses. What is happening? You see in the title. Why was Jesus visited by Elijah and Moses? Well, it represents the law and the prophets. If you understand the Old Testament, the Old Testament is broken up into uh, major divisions. And when we talk about the Old Testament, when we talk specifically about uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, it's just called the law in the, uh, for, for the Jews. It's called the Torah. And so when Moses appears, Moses appears in a sense representing 
Israel's history, Israel's experience with God, the revealing of God's law, and Moses shows up. Moses is a, is a significant figure that towers over the Old Testament for the Jew. And so Moses appears representing the law. We also know that uh, we have the prophets. So the Old Testament ends with prophet after prophet. Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jer- uh, Daniel. There's prophet after prophet. And so the, another major section of the, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, was the prophets. And specifically, these two are brought together when the book of Malachi, by the way, so Malachi ends the Old Testament. It's the, it's the last book of the Old Testament before the New Testament begins. It's, it's the closing of the history of Israel. And then there's 400 kind of silent years. And then there's the beginning of the New Testament. But let me show you how Malachi ends, and maybe it'll make more sense why Elijah and Moses are meeting with Jesus on the mountain. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. This is how Malachi, the last prophet given to God's people, ends. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So as the Old Testament ends, they are specifically told, be looking for Moses. Don't forget Moses. Don't forget Elijah. And so as Jesus is meeting on the mountain, how significant is it that suddenly Moses and Elijah appear? It makes you go directly to those verses uh, in Jesus' uh, teaching where he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to what? Fulfill. And so Jesus himself has already been teaching. I didn't come to do away with Moses in the law. I didn't come to do away with the prophets. In fact, Jesus makes very clear I am actually fulfilling all that they have been teaching. The entire story of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus' coming. And so that's what I want to get at as we look at verses 5 and 6. Why did Moses and Elijah appear? And the answer is because all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God is doing. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. And as I mentioned already, Jesus specifically, as he begins to teach the kingdom, says... Don't think I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, verses 7 and 8, I want to move to the next section. Confirmed from above. Let's read. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Confirmed from above. Remember I had asked you earlier when we talked about the Mythbusters, uh, if someone were to tell you something that so challenged your beliefs that it would, it, it would take them to, it, to prove to you, literally it would have to be proven to you to believe. And the question that I next asked, well, what kind of proof? What kind of proof could actually prove that Jesus is exactly who he said he was? Well, they've seen this transfiguration, But if Jesus was who he claimed he was, there actually is only one voice higher than his. There's only one testimony that would be greater than his own. 
And that's what we get here in verses 7 and 8, because literally God's voice speaks from the cloud. It says, a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. We had seen God's voice when we first began Mark. Do you remember when we began Mark, Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism? What happens? At Jesus' baptism, we see a similar event. We're confirmed Jesus' identity. God speaks from the sky, from the clouds. Look at Mark 1, 10 to 11. It says, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. And verse 11 says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so God is going to bookend. Jesus is go- at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God speaks from heaven so that the people would know and understand and believe, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. And then now after Jesus has, has ministered and invited disciples, and now he's, they've reached a climax of identifying him as the Messiah, and then he gives them a message that disorients them. I'm going to suffer and die. They need someone to be able to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And what does God do? God graciously gives them a sign. And so Jesus is going to be transfigured. He's going, they're going to see his glory. They're going to see his identity as God himself. And what else does God do? God literally speaks from the sky. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So when God speaks, what do we see? We see two things. We see confirmation of Jesus' identity and message. And we see a command. Listen to him. Let me just camp out on that command to listen to him because I think oftentimes, and this happens to us, we think it's enough to simply come to church and, and mentally assent to the truths that we teach. But it's so clear from God is that Jesus' disciples weren't simply to believe what Jesus said. They were to listen to him. What does it mean to listen to him? It means to follow him, to obey him. Their confirmation wasn't for their knowing, it was for their doing. And so God is going to confirm, not so that they know in their minds, God confirms so that they begin to follow Jesus with their lives. And this brings us to the closing commands in verses 9 to 13. This is the last section we'll be looking at today. This is a little bit longer section. And so we'll quickly move through this and summarize. It says, and they were coming down the mountain, so now the... uh, the transfiguration has ended. They have seen God's glory, they have, or Jesus' glory. They have seen or, or heard the voice from heaven. And as you can imagine, they're trying to wrap their minds around what they had seen and heard. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then Jesus is going to do what Jesus often does. He hears their question and he answers with a question. But this time he at least confirmed. He said Elijah did come first. But he says, and how, excuse me, uh, and how is it written? the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. 
So let me briefly summarize. The disciples are now walking down the mountain. Their minds are spinning. There's still a lot of questions. And they had actually just seen Elijah, which brings to their mind, why do the scribes always talk about the fact that Elijah must come first? So maybe now is the answer. Because maybe they're thinking, well, is this it? Did we just see Elijah, right? So is this what it means that Elijah comes first? Jesus doesn't actually answer uh, very specifically, but he does tell them Elijah came first. It's not in the text, but I think we all know Elijah's coming was not that appearance on the mountain. It was John the Baptist. Scriptures are very clear. That was the Elijah. That was the forerunner. That was the one who came before. John the Baptist came, and he was the Elijah they were to be looking for. Why this strange command? If you think about this, we've seen this over and over again in Mark. But why this strange command not to tell anyone? And by the way, Peter and James and John honored that. They didn't tell anyone about the transfiguration. We read this, and, and as we read the account, it seems like it's, uh, everything's happening. Already in chapter 8, we hear about this transfiguration. But those three men didn't even tell their own fellow disciples. They didn't tell anyone until after Jesus had risen from the dead. Why this strange command? Well, as we've already talked about, this is what we call the messianic secret. What is the messianic secret? Is that because Jesus understood that the way to the the eventual exaltation of him being the king of the kingdom was first and foremost through humiliation, where Jesus would willingly lay down his life, would willingly suffer and die for sins. Is because Jesus knew his, something his disciples couldn't quite understand. Is that there was no kingdom with Jesus inviting all of those who would believe in him and believe in his message and faith without first dying for our sins. Jesus knew that this was a hard message. And so when Jesus would share about his identity and he would share about his message, he would tell those who would listen, keep this to yourselves until I've gone to Jerusalem, until I've laid down my life, that Jesus wasn't interested in trying to become king now. And so we would often see Jesus say, don't share this. The summary here is just simply, as you look at this, Jesus answers their question with a question. They ask about Elijah, and Jesus says, why is it the Son of Man must suffer? Jesus does this with this or with us sometimes, as Jesus invites them to connect the dots, he actually doesn't explain things fully. Have you ever had this happen in your own life? Where when you're going through difficulties and you want so bad for God to connect every dot for you, you want everything explained, you want everything laid out. Why, why, why? And so Jesus is going to invite his disciples. He doesn't explain to them exactly at this point in time that John the Baptist was the Elijah. But he does want them to connect the dots, and he doesn't want them to be surprised that if John the Baptist was punished and killed, or jailed and killed, that Jesus shouldn't accept any kind of different treatment at the hands of his enemies, right? So we've walked through the whole passage. Let me just bring this to a close. I want to bring it to a, just kind of a personal application. Everything we've talked about right now has been specifically in terms of Jesus with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and how God was confirming to them exactly who he was. I want to kind of close as we've unpacked this passage and what each of those verses means 
by looking more at ourselves. You know, I told you that Mythbusters always ended the show with either it was busted or confirmed. This is how every show ended. When we kind of bring the conversation on Jesus' uh, transfiguration to a close, here's what we see. Jesus, his message, his identity, his divinity has been confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt. First of all, his closest disciples are going to see his glory and then literally a voice speaks from heaven. You can't have a, any kind of higher confirmation than what the disciples saw. They saw at first a confirmation in Jesus. Literally, the glory of God is radiating from the inside out, not like Moses. Jesus didn't reflect God's glory. Jesus was God in the flesh. And God confirms it. And so if God has confirmed Jesus as his son, and God has confirmed Jesus' his mission, if God has confirmed that Jesus must lay down his life, that the way to life, that the way to the kingdom is through Jesus' death and resurrection, so that he could willingly die for the sins, for your sins and my sins. And his command is to listen to his son. This is what I want to ask you. Have you personally heard God's voice confirming Jesus as his son? Now, I'm not trying to uh, talk about, have you heard an audible voice? What I'm asking you is, have your eyes been opened Are you absolutely clear and confident in Jesus and his identity and his mission and what that means to you? Because God's spoken. It's it's actually not a gray area. This isn't something that's still out for a verdict. The only verdict that needs to be decided is where are you at? God has already spoken from heaven. Jesus has already revealed his glory. Jesus spent two years revealing himself and teaching to the crowds publicly so that we have a written record. The only question is now is that we know that it's not a myth. We know it's confirmed. So the question is, where is your heart? God has confirmed it. Have you accepted it? It's not a matter of, is this truth or a lie? Is this fact or fiction? Is this the world's greatest myth myth ever foisted on mankind? That this Jesus exists? That God exists? And that sins can be forgiven? No, it's not a myth. It's been confirmed. That's what the transfiguration does. And if it's been confirmed, then here's what I know has happened then the command to follow is not optional. And Jesus has invited you to follow him. And then the last thing is, then you should have complete confidence in building your entire life on him. I told you we begin with three C's. Confirmation, command, confidence. God has confirmed it. He's commanded us to listen to his son, Jesus. And that should give us the utmost confidence in living out our lives and following him. If there's one thing that Christians do not lack, we don't lack a purpose. We don't wonder about the future. And we have been given everything we need for life and salvation here and now. Our, our, Our lives in the midst of suffering don't lose their value. When things don't make sense, God's plan is still at work. In fact, it might look a lot like Jesus' plan where he says, 
The way to exaltation is first through suffering and death. So with that, my first question is, have you heard? My last question is simply this. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and it has been confirmed, are you listening yourself? And I don't mean attending church, and I don't mean being religious. I, liter- I mean literally every decision, everything that you do, everything that you value, the words that come out of your mouth, the kind of person that you are, the way that you love. Is it all done in listening to Jesus? Recognizing that God has confirmed him as his son and he's commanded us to listen to him. If you've never heard anybody share that story in this way and you want to know more, I invite you to talk with myself, talk with Stefan. If you've been brought with a friend, talk to your friend. Jesus has given us the opportunity to know true life. And he's invited us to follow him as he reveals to us God's plan. Let's pray. Jesus, you are confirmed as God's own son. We receive God's command that we should listen to your son. That we should follow him. That we should build our lives. And God, we hope this gives us great confidence that none of us live meaningless lives. We are not defined by our jobs. We are not defined by disease. We're not defined by the wars that rage around us. We're not defined by our culture or the country that we come from. We're defined by knowing the living God. And we've been given life to follow after him. I pray that all who are in the ability to hear my voice would hear and respond to your word today, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.